G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. We'll unpack some Christian perspectives today on what has led to this postponement of the weekend election. Uh, It's a nation that is divided almost evenly between Christianity and Islam. Now, as you might imagine, having been a last moment uh, postponement, there are calls for calm because there's all sorts of risks of things that can break out in a nation like Nigeria. There are denials that the delay came because of political influence by the two main rival parties. Uh, They're blaming each other over issues of manipulation. We're going to talk through some issues today on what happens when there are attempts to derail a democratic process. As the Islamic leader, President Bahari, is accused of trying to cling to power. Now, the voters are reportedly disappointed, frustrated and angry. Headlines were reflecting the challenges in the African nation. Uh, Like Nigerians who will be forced to choose between the idea of the lesser of two evils. The president of Nigeria is elected using a simple majority of the highest votes cast, as well as over 25% of the votes in at least two-thirds of states. Now, there's some postponements there too, which we might get to. The incumbent president, Muhammadu Bahari, leads the All Progressives Congress. He's a Muslim. And his vice president, Yemi Osibajo, is a Christian pastor. He's Pentecostal. His opponent was Atiku Abubakar, a former vice president. On his Facebook page, he says, I'm a Muslim. Some call me a liberal Muslim because maybe because I never try to impose my religion on others. I strongly believe in everybody's right to practice whatever religion they choose. This stems from my upbringing, environment, education and associations. Well, I'm sure that's not necessarily made things perfectly clear, but things will come to focus as we get our conversation underway this morning. Always enjoy welcoming our special guest today as we unpack some of the issues around what's going on in Africa and what this might mean for Western nations who are looking out for what could be ahead into the future. Elizabeth Kendall is joining us, an international religious liberty analyst and advocate. She serves as Director of Advocacy at the Canberra-based Christian Faith and Freedom and is an adjunct research fellow at the Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of Islam at Melbourne School of Theology. She's written a couple of significant books, Turn Back the Battle, Isaiah Speaks to Christians Today, and After Saturday Comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East. A special welcome back to 2020 to you, Elizabeth Kendall. 
And thanks for having me, Neil. Elizabeth, this is significant because when we set the date in the diary, we thought we would be talking today about what happened in the elections on the weekend in Nigeria. Uh, Big developments, though, and very significant and particularly politically sensitive, uh, particularly if you're a Nigerian and you think that uh, the other side is doing the wrong thing by you. What are your thoughts on the postponement? Well, I agree with the Independent National Electoral Commission uh, in Nigeria that they probably really did need to postpone the elections by a week. They've had a couple of um, election electoral offices burned to the ground uh, and they were in really important flashpoint hotspot areas. So one was in Plateau State, uh, in Joss actually, which is a religious fault line flashpoint area uh, an electoral office was burned to the ground there. And the other one that was burned to the ground is in uh, Abia, which is in the southeast, in that area that we might remember was once uh, going to be known as Biafra. And there's been a big protest movement in Biafra of uh, Ibo uh, people, so the people who are indigenous to the southeast, protesting President Buhari's marginalization of the IBO. So they act, there is a protest movement wanting to boycott the elections and there was an electoral office burned to the ground there. And then not long after that, there was a shipping container uh, in the southeast completely um, full of um, uh, voter cards and all things, that, voter card readers, that is. That, so material that is necessary for the elections just completely burned. Uh, these were supplies that would have been spread out across the country to enable the election to go ahead. So I think that that the Electoral Commission is right in saying they needed to postpone for the uh, integrity of the elections. The trouble is, these elections are being so hotly contested that the uh, the hate speech that has been going on and the incitement that has been going on, the accusations from both sides of each side accusing the other side of working to rig the elections and steal the elections and and the great fear of violence means that like it's sort of like it's like throwing a spark in and and nobody knows quite what's going on so i'm actually very pleased that no violence has erupted uh with the postponement of the elections i think people realize that uh, that this is genuine. This, is, this was not a political party calling for postponement. It wasn't the president. It was the Independent National Electoral Commission. And praise God, I think, honestly, God is answering the prayers of many, even right now, by enabling Nigeria to remain calm and without violence. Because it could have erupted. It could have erupted. And I believe that God is answering the prayers of many in keeping the situation calm. And, of course, there are the usual uh, emergence of violence. There was uh, one report that I saw uh, some violence in the lead-up to the elections, uh, I think goes back to last weekend. Eleven people killed in an attack by Islamic Boko Haram militants. And uh, one might say, is that a, uh, a you, you know, business-as-usual attack by Boko Haram or is that going to be politically motivated? But those sorts of issues uh, with those types of Islamic groups, uh, they obviously are going to have some political motivation at their heart, aren't they? Yeah, now the Boko Haram, there's been a couple of Boko Haram attacks, one in Borno and one in neighbouring Yobi states. So right up in the northeast where Boko Haram 
is uh, based, there have been two attacks involving suicide bombers, the one that you mentioned, and then another one just uh, more recently against uh, soldiers. Four soldiers were killed. And um, we'll talk about this a little bit more in detail, but part of the reason why Boko Haram is actually having quite a lot of success in the northeast killing large numbers of Nigerian soldiers primarily and raiding Nigerian military bases is because the corruption uh, is so deep in the Nigerian military. So this is all being exposed at this time. Uh, the, other, the other violence that's been a real problem, of course, as your listeners will probably uh, know because I know we've talked about it, has been the Fulani violence uh, uh, right through the Middle Belt. And uh, that's a really serious situation. And once again, corruption in the military is all uh, tied up with it. Now, there's been a, an attack was reported in Kaduna State uh, last weekend, and this is really murky. So it looked like the, the uh, Islamic governor of Kaduna said that 66 Fulani Muslims had been slaughtered in a massacre. And yet the uh, investigations are really, really strange. The military is supporting that and saying, yes, 66 Fulani Muslims were killed. Uh, the um, the, um, uh, the um, Nigerian um, Christian, uh, what is it, the uh, CAN, hang on, uh, the Christian Council of Nigeria is saying, no, it, it actually isn't true. The National Emergency Commission has said, no, it's not true. There was a clash, there was, there was an attack on a Christian community or an indigenous tribal community. Then there was a reprisal attack against the Fulani, which left about 11 dead or 10 dead. So there's really murky stuff happening. And, and now the governor of Kaduna is being accused by the churches of trying to incite sectarian conflict in the state. So all of Nigeria is in a very delicate situation at the moment. I would say it's, it's like simmering on the boil and we're just praying and praying that no one will be able to turn the heat up or no one will throw a match into that, that tinderbox because it's all very, very delicate. Elizabeth, uh, let's tackle a little more background here. You mentioned that you've got this sort of dividing line. If uh, listeners think of a central African nation and uh, across the dividing line to the north, you've got primarily Islamic control and to the south, you've got Christians. And I did mention that, you know, roughly, I think it's a little bit more uh, Islamic than it is Christian, but roughly even sort of numbers here. But take us back just briefly to the previous election, because this, I think, uh, sheds some light on the importance here, because there was a Christian president before uh, the current president, President Bahari, took power at the last election. And, uh, and that was also very, very significant and a lot of uh, controversy around these religious issues within Nigeria. Uh, give us some insights uh, going back to uh, the president we'd know as Good Luck Jonathan. Well, we can go back even further than Good Luck Jonathan because in Nigeria's first free and fair democratic elections, which were, I think, 1999, if it wasn't 99, it was 98, uh, the people of Nigeria elected a Yoruba man, um, Olusigan Obazanjo, 
And he was a strong, committed Pentecostal Christian. Now, the Yoruba are the indigenous people of the southwest. The Ibo are the indigenous people of the southeast. They're also Christian. These are African tribes, black African peoples. And the north of Nigeria is Hausa and Fulani, uh, with many Arab uh, mixings in there as well, and they're Muslim. So when the, it was all to do with the British colonial era, you know, they decided that they should not separate the north from the south. Uh, they'd be better not to have two separate countries because all the real resources were in the south. However, the power was in the north because the, the Muslims were organized already when the British got there. They were very organized, and whereas the southern tribes were not so organized. So the power was in the north, but all the resources were in the south. So the British said we should keep the country together and uh, as one country, and the resources can, should be shared across this whole country. And it was the southern peoples who became Christians under the British, uh, British missionary work during, during that era. The southern peoples became Christians. And as Christians, they became, you know, interested in education and health care and governance, and they excelled. And within a couple of generations, you have, <clears throat> you know, Ibo Christians with PhDs from London. And in the meantime, the Fulani House of Muslims are rejecting Western education and clinging to their Islamic ways, and this is the main reason why um, that why the South developed more than the North. It's not because of prejudice and discrimination, or even a stealing or a hoarding of funds. It's really the two different systems, uh, the, and the fact that Christianity produces something that's different to Islam. Well, and what happened was the Muslims began to feel really uncomfortable about the Christian peoples becoming powerful. And that's when we end up with the Biafra War. We've had a lot of issues in Nigeria over religion and tribe and north versus south. But, you know, we say, you know, Nigeria is about 50-50 Muslim Christian, but they will never vote for an Islamist president. I mean, I, don't, I still think they won't because so many Muslims do not want to live under Sharia law. So you will always have um, Christians voting for a Christian and lots of Muslims not wanting to vote for an Islamist. And at their first democratic elections, they elected a southern Christian, Olusigan Obasanjo, and he ruled for two terms. And then they had like an unspoken rule in Nigeria that they'll switch from north to south. So if the south has a turn at ruling, then the north should rule. So after Elusigan Opazanjo finished his two terms, rule was supposed to switch to the north. And the same party stayed in power, the PDP, the People's Democratic Party, but they had a northern Muslim as uh, the president. He was from that party, but he was a northern Muslim. And then after that, they elected a southerner, and that was um, Good Luck Jonathan. And um, he had one term, uh, and then Buhari was elected. And I would suggest that Buhari, Mohamedou Buhari, was elected primarily on the back of his vice president, uh, Yemi Osinbanjo, 
who is a Pentecostal Christian in one of the large, he's a pastor in one of the largest Pentecostal denominations in Nigeria. And he got Christians to vote for Buhari, who has actually historically always been recognized as an Islamist and was once an Islamist military dictator of Nigeria. But uh, Yemi Osimbajo got like, Christians to vote for Buhari by employing, he created the little jingle, I have decided to vote Buhari. And he got the, <laughs> got, got the Christians voting for Buhari, and they're not going to vote for him again because it's been an absolute disaster. Well, the plot an thickens. Absolute disaster. And uh, I know that listeners can hear just how complex this all mm. is, and I know that there'll be some hanging on every word uh, trying to capture some of the, uh, the flow of this because, in some sense, when we are introduced to something that we're not so familiar with, uh, it's difficult to follow the complexities. But as you're describing it, Elizabeth Kendall, it it sounds a little bit like a bit of a soap opera and there are some intriguing things that capture our imagination. There's also some important lessons to learn in all of this when it comes to the rise of Islam and we'll get to some of those in just a few moments. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Elizabeth Kendall is our guest this hour, international religious liberty analyst and advocate. We're talking through issues in the postponed election in the African nation of Nigeria. We have laid some foundations in place. It is complex, but very interesting when you look at the almost even makeup of Nigeria, of Islamic people and Christian people and the significance of faith and what it plays in the way that their democratic processes are working out. Elizabeth Kendall, issues here of uh, what might develop, given that there has been a postponement of the election. Uh, nobody wanted that, but the Electoral Commission there in Nigeria has decided to postpone it. Of course, uh, what happens now uh, is the possibility of violence occurring. What are your thoughts? Well, I think the pros prospect of violence uh, has been here from the beginning, and, and it's not an unfounded uh, fear. So Nigerians go to the polls to elect a president every four years, and a president can have two terms. Now, this is the third time that Mohamedou Buhari has run for president, right? So the, la the last time he ran was in 2015. That was when he defeated Goodluck Jonathan. Now, um, at that time, Goodluck Jonathan, who is a Christian, uh, from the, the Deep South, from the Niger Delta, uh, he knew that, that there was going to be huge tension in society, because there always is, after elections in pretty well anywhere in Africa especially, um, that there would be tension. As soon as he saw the result, he appealed for calm, he accepted the result publicly, and he conceded defeat graciously, and he appealed to all his supporters to be calm, to accept the result, and to realize that no amount of bloodshed uh, and the loss of Nigerian lives uh, is worth it. Uh, we accept the result with grace. We, we accept it and move on. <clears throat> so there was no violence and everyone moved on. Back in, 2000, in 2011, Buhari lost to Good Luck Jonathan. And on that occasion, uh, he just immediately cried foul 
he said, oh, this proves that the polls have been rigged. I think, and before the elections, he was saying, uh, I, I will win if the election is free and fair. So he was setting all his followers up with this thought that if the, if the elections are free and fair, Buhari is going to win. The only reason he won't win is because they've been rigged and he's been cheated of the election. That was the narrative he ran before the polls. And as soon as he lost in 2011, violence broke out across the north and through the middle belt. And three days of Muslim rioting... Uh, amounted to more than 800 mostly Christian Nigerians being killed. And, you know, I mean, thousands wounded and tens of thousands displaced. It was the worst electoral violence in the country's history because Buhari lost and because he'd set up the whole situation so that in the event of a loss, there would be violence. And the great fear is that exactly the same thing is happening today. Now, Buhari is going to lose. There is virtually no doubt about that because his presidency from 2015 to 2019 has been an absolute disaster. Buhari said he would deal with corruption and the corruption has got worse. Uh, in fact, it's all being exposed now that the heads of the military have been fueling the conflict all around the country so they can increase the funding of the military and steal all the money. <laughs> and the soldiers are going out with, with... Sometimes they go out with two bullets, a cheap gun from China and two bullets, and so they're dying in large numbers. The, the military is ready to revolt. He also promised to fix uh, the violence in the country, and, of course, that's got worse because of the corruption. It's now at crisis levels. Everything he promised to fix has got worse. He is going. He will never get re-elected. But he has already prepared the ground, uh, as he did in 2011, for that to be met with an, out of the, with an eruption of violence. So there's a great deal of anxiety, because if that happens, it will be Christians that will be getting killed, Christians in the north, Christians through the Middle Belt, and probably every Ibo Christian that they can find. Big issues at play when we talk about the growth of corruption because we're not immune to the growth of corruption in Australia. And as we've seen with royal commissions across different sectors, uh, this is something here even in Australia that we see growing. Not that I'm saying that we're uh, at any particular risk point at this time, but there is a certain sense in which uh, Christian ethics and foundations to democracy, Elizabeth Kendall, actually endeavour to uh, minimise corruption. In fact, you can identify corruption uh, according to some Christian ethics. Uh, but, uh, but corruption is one of those things that if it gets out of control, you're in real trouble, aren't you, in any democracy situation? Well, absolutely. And, and you know, the thing is that corruption goes right to the core of wickedness in the human heart. So no amount of, of making laws is actually going to fix it. You need, you need a revival in the human heart where human beings say, my heart is wicked, it needs to be cleansed, I need my sins forgiven, I need to be, I need to be filled with the Spirit of God and empowered to live a righteous life. And until then, we are always going to have issues with corruption. And, you know, people say, why do we focus so much on politics? 
uh, why, why don't we just focus only on the spiritual matters? Well, the thing is, we have to focus on the politics as well because the, the, politi- the politicians are lawmakers. So if we elect um, people who are not going to make good laws, people who are not going to keep the law, people who are wicked and who are corrupt... Elizabeth, we're going to need to continue this part of the conversation. I don't like to cut you off at an important point like this. We'll come back after Vision National News. When you've got corruption rising or whether you've got corruption that's not under control, all sorts of challenges eventuate. Uh, If we could pick up a a thread there from where we were before the news, uh, what were your thoughts uh, on those issues of corruption? Well, corruption has just spiralled out of control in Nigeria. And the, the, the worst thing about, the worst bit of corruption at the moment is what's just being exposed now about the corruption in the Nigerian military. So people right at the very heads of the military, the very senior most commanders, are actually feeding and fueling the conflict I- across the country. And because the more conflict they have, the more they can put their hat out for money from the government. And the more money the government gives them, the more they go and party and spend it and cycle it off in all other places. They're making themselves rich on this, on this, um, this money, this, this funding. And their actual soldiers are not receiving food and ammunition. So the Nigerian military is on the verge of collapse and ready to revolt. So it's a very delicate situation. And, um, you know, um, Atiku Abubakar, the opposition uh, candidate, he is also a northern Muslim. And a lot of people have said, oh, this is terrible. You've got two Fulani northern Muslims running against each other. You know, what hope have we got? But... You know, Buhari is a known Islamist and a general, a former major general in the military. This corruption goes right up to him. Atiko Abubakar is quite a different person. He is a businessman. Uh, yes, he's got four wives. He's a Muslim. He's done the Hajj. Two of his wives are Christians. One is a Yoruba. One is an, is an Ibo. He actually has genuine interests in uh, fixing up the problems in Nigeria. He has genuine interests in bringing peace to Nigeria. His, um, his vice president, Peter Obi, is an Ibo man, uh, a, a Christian man. He's a Catholic. His younger sister is a nun and his older brother is a Catholic priest. And he is a, known as a, as a serious financial manager. And some people say, well, but he's a Fulani Muslim from the north. And I think if anybody is going to be able to tell Fulani citizens and Fulani individuals to not be incited, to not react with violence, I think it can only be another Fulani Muslim. I don't think any Christian Ibo or Yoruba man can tell the Fulani Muslims what to do. They won't listen to it. They won't. And I think that this is actually God's hand and God's grace. And I'm actually really hopeful that when we can get through these elections, um, I really believe that the, the team of Atiko Abubakar and Peter Obi and of the People's Democratic Party could actually 
could very possibly turn Nigeria around. And the thing they have to cap, cap, really deal with is this issue of corruption. Corruption just ruins everything. Interestingly, when you reflect on the idea that the Christians in the south of Nigeria may be inclined to vote for an Islamic leader, uh, of course, the opposite doesn't always uh, gel the same way because Islamists don't like to be ruled by a Christian leader. And that's the sort of thing that we saw uh, with the uh, events in Indonesia uh, of recent times. Let's just move our conversation a little bit uh, off just Nigeria and into the fact that there are a number of elections that are coming, Elizabeth Kendall. And uh, we mentioned uh, the Indonesian elections, but also Indian elections coming up. We have our own elections here in Australia. Uh, what are your thoughts about some of the ways that, that those elections are shaping in those different parts of the world? Well, regarding, say, the Nigerian elections, the Indonesian elections and the Indian elections... However the vote goes, Christians will be impacted by the result. In a lot of situations, you have uh, religious nationalism at play. So in Nigeria, for, for example, Buhari, will, he, will run, he will play to the Islamic audience in a way that Atika Abubakar is not. Now, uh, see, Christians will vote for Atiko Abubakar. Uh, I have no doubt about that. And, and uh, you know, Nigeria has elected Christian presidents in the past, so there are lots and lots of Muslims in Nigeria who want good governance. They're not just looking for a Muslim. And I believe it's the same in Indonesia as well. There are lots and lots of Muslims who want good governance, and they actually don't want an Islamic president. And it's really disappointing that President Wadodo is playing to the Islamic, uh, to the Islamic parties and to the Islamic, uh, leaders in his country. And, you know, we need to pray through the Indonesian elections. We need to pray in the run up to the elections, especially, because how that, how that election pans out will impact the lives of Christians in Indonesia. Likewise in India. How the elections pan out in India will impact the lives of Christians in India. Um, if the Hindu nationalists have a great whopping majority, Christians are going to be in a very difficult, difficult place. Um, the Hindu nationalists in India would like to have a, a complete majority so they can change the constitution and make India a Hindu state with anti-conversion laws at the federal level. That's what they want. Now, they got elected last time with a very clean majority, but not an absolute majority. So they haven't been able to change the constitution. It would be even better if they were forced into, a, into, into, an alliance, into alliances where their views would be moderated. We need to pray for these elections because the result impacts Christians. And, I mean, it's the same in Australia, exactly the same.
Peace and harmony depends on that. When we talk about these different nations, and uh, I'm not sure how the Hindu uh, reactions are to losing, but it does appear that Islamists are very, very poor losers. When we talk about democracy, and uh, as we mentioned there just before the news, this idea of graciously accepting defeat. Uh, And uh, we like to think that in our own Australian democracy, graciously accepting defeat is the way that you have a peaceful change of power. Of course, uh, in the US, if we were looking at uh, Trump and uh, his rise to power and the fact that the Democrats didn't have a gracious uh, defeat, uh, there's a certain sense in which being gracious in defeat is a particularly important part of how democracy functions. Uh, But in these different contexts, Elizabeth Kendall, and uh, talking back to Nigeria for a moment, uh, the likelihood of there being violence if Bihari doesn't win and you say he's not likely to win, that means they're in for a bit of a rough road ahead. Absolutely. And this is why we really need to be prayerful. We need to be watching and we need to be praying. And as I said right at the outset, I believe that the peace to date, even after the postponement, is because the church is praying for peace in Nigeria. And if I tell you what, if Bihari loses and there are no riots, it'll be because God has worked a miracle. Because it's not really, it's not even just that Muslims can be bad losers. I mean, anyone can be a bad loser. The thing is, it is often, it is often a, uh, a tactic of, of groups that have a different worldview and a different ethic, and uh, maybe they have, a, have an Islamic view that they shouldn't be ruled by infidels, or they can play on these things, but they feed... They fuel violence. They incite it by, by saying, I'll win the elections unless they're rigged. Things like that. That's what happened in 2011. And um, I don't think that there's risk of violence necessarily in Indonesia and possibly not in India either. Definitely in um, Nigeria, though. But in all, the situa- all these cases, these are emerging democracies. And um, people are going to be electing lawmakers, the people who make the laws, the people who might rule that conversion is banned in this country, or people who might legislate saying everyone, you know, uh, has to go to the mosque or something. You know, these are lawmakers that we elect when we go to the polls. And in these countries where Christians are at risk and Christians are very vulnerable, we as Christians need to pray through those elections for our brothers and sisters because these elections are very, very important to their future. Elizabeth, time's running out and I want to spend a few minutes getting your thoughts on our Australian election uh, because we've got one coming up and we could, uh, if we uh, are uh, you know, a little sensitive to the way that the electorate might be in Australia, there is a growing divide between those who have a conservative view and those who have a more progressive socialist view. And it might appear that if those on the progressive socialist view are similar to the, uh, the Democrats in the US, say, uh, that there could be a less tolerance if there was an election loss coming up in an Australian election. So uh, just setting the scene there, but your thoughts on the fact that we're going to the polls and people are becoming somewhat more divided uh, across uh, political ideologies. Uh, What are your thoughts for our election coming? 
Well, I think it's very, very important that all Christians take the elections very seriously and to realize that we are not just electing people who are going to run offices. You know, the guy who's going to run that local office down the road, you know, with the big poster on the front. People who are going to go to Canberra and debate. We are actually going to elect lawmakers, the people who will make the laws in this country. And, you know... I think it can tend, it can generally tend to be the case that people who are very what we would call progressive, very radical, very seeking radical progressive change are very fired up, and they're out there campaigning and they're out there uh, doing their bit and they're going to vote and they're going to be giving out campaign cards, and it's quite often the case that people who are more conservative are a little bit maybe a little bit more apathetic and a little bit more shy about things and they're, they don't dominate the media like, like the progressives do and it's a little bit more difficult. And really, I think that, that the biggest problem we have is a lot of conservatives maybe not taking the interest they need to take, not looking closely at policy and seeing what people are actually offering us. And there's a lot of people who, uh, I think, vote routinely for like for the same party every time without actually looking at the policies of the party has my party changed its policies um have they are they becoming a different sort of party to the one i've been voting for for the last 20 30 years um is this really what i want um they we need to take it very very Seriously, because we are electing people who make laws for this country, not just for ourselves, but for our children and for our grandchildren. So we have to do our homework. We have to look at what our, at what our MPs believe, what they're offering us, what they're going to do, and uh, not just economically, but in terms of the values that they're going to promote. And we have to take it very seriously. Elizabeth, a comment on our Facebook page from Lorraine who says, Our way and beliefs have taken a back road. No longer we feel the way to free speech and the issues facing our country. No longer we feel safe in a country. Uh, There is a growing sense in which, if you reflect on what Lorraine is sharing there, uh, that people feel like we've taken a different direction. What are your thoughts uh, for Lorraine? Well, you know, you just have to look at the census results over the course of the last, of the 20th century. I think, um, and I haven't got the statistics in front of me, but in, in like about 1911 or something, the Australian census said that we were like 95% Christian. And it's just gone down and down, particularly from the 1960s onwards. So you get the, you know, the great sexual revolution, the great changes in society that really have seen the rise of atheism, um, the rise of radical feminism and the LGBTQ movement, uh, all connected with Marxism and leftist values, have really taken uh, a grip in Australia and it has changed the Australian landscape, changed the demographic. And it's like being the frog in the pot as it's heating up. You don't often see it, but we need to open our eyes and wake up and accept that this is the reality. The last census put those who identify as Christians at 52%. That is just so close. 
And I would suggest that if the number who identify as Christians are 52%, then devout church-going believers are probably not much more than 10%. That they are a small minority in the Anglo population, while they're probably larger minorities or even majorities in the ethnic minority peoples that are in this country. And this is something really, really serious. And, of course, this all reflects in the sort of government that we vote. You know, the government is a reflection of society. And so that, so we are electing people who are frequently have a very different worldview to uh, the worldview from, you know, 30, 50, 60 years ago. And it's not even, you know, I'm not talking about being old-fashioned. I'm talking about eternal values here. And uh, we're seeing things change. I mean, we see it daily just you know the 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 whole landscape is changing and And of course if you if you have a serious belief about what is good for the country you have to take the elections seriously you have to look at policy you have to take it seriously and of course there are some behind the scenes things that i'm picking up from our conversation today elizabeth kendall uh things like uh, how you might view a maintaining of integrity in democratic processes and and this is really this is an apolitical thing this is about how the process of democracy works because every now and then you hear people talking about uh, you know new forms of uh, electronic voting and uh, those sorts of things and and then there's the doubts over whether they might actually be as reliable as uh, putting a one through five on a ballot paper and uh, I'm sure there are all sorts of ways you can rig the process but there's some Something in, I think, in our Christian heartbeat that says an integrity in democratic processes has to be one of the safeguards uh, for how the future might unfold. Oh, absolutely. And again, this is something that Christians must be praying for. The church should be praying for the the elections. I think they're due in May is what we're expecting our elections to be in May at the moment. We need to be praying for them now. We need to be praying for them in our churches, in our intercessory prayers every single week. We need to pray that they'll be free and fair that there will be um, integrity. And because I tell you what, you know, as time goes on, the uh, the the art of rigging the election just gets more and more sophisticated. And you know, you don't even need to rig a machine. You can just. Uh, like in referendums, the very question you ask can determine the outcome. There's a brilliant episode in Yes, Prime Minister where Humphrey shows the Prime Minister how the wording of a question can determine the result. And, of course, I've been watching elections in Pakistan and all over the country, and I've seen how, you know, changes in electoral laws, uh, all sorts of things. I'm gerrymandering is sort of... So yesterday, there are such sophisticated ways now to rig elections. It's unbelievable. It's an art form. And so we have to be praying that our elections will be free and fair and will reflect honestly and truly what the Australian people want, even if it's something that we think is ghastly. We need to take that as, as, a, as a statement. If the Australian public, you know, was to elect something absolutely horrendous, then the church needs to realise, boy, we've got a lot of work to do. We need to understand that in a democracy, what we get is uh, a reflection of society. It's what the society wants. 
And if the people are voting for, you know, all these uh, different things, we need to realize that the ch- this is where the church has failed to make its case. So the church needs to get very serious um, about <clears throat> about putting forward its case, why what we believe is good and right and true and good for society. Uh, we need to make our case, and we need to make our case to our congregations and to all Christian people that they need to realize they are electing lawmakers and to take that very, very seriously indeed. And we don't have time to continue a conversation that might have talked about the age of social media and all of the influences that are flowing into every nation, as we saw in the American uh, midterm elections and uh, the previous election when Trump was elected, the influences that come from Russia or from China and uh, all of the different uh, politically driven ideologies that want to uh, have impact on the outcomes of the elections. And of course, as Christians, we're mindful of those things, uh, not fearful of those things, but certainly uh, diligent to, to make sure that uh, that what we're doing is of integrity. Let me point people to elizabethkendall.com where you can make contact with Elizabeth Kendall. There's some notes there. No doubt you can find some detail about the Nigerian elections that we've been talking about, but also lots and lots of articles and prayer guides that help you to be informed about the developments that are happening around the world in so many different contexts. There's also a couple of books I'd point you to. Turn Back the Battle, Isaiah Speaks to Christians Today, and After Saturday Comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East. Uh, Simply go to elizabethkendall.com. Elizabeth, always just love your insights. I look forward to the next time we get an opportunity like this to talk, but thank you so much for taking some time to share these thoughts with us today on 2020. And thank you again for having me, Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.